Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Welcome to Space 3D. This is part two of our interview with amateur astronomer Scott Gower. In this episode, Tom, Emily, and I get into some of the nitty-gritty with Scott on telescope design considerations, enhancements for added deep sky viewing, cameras, and how computers have become an essential companion to many budding astronomers, particularly for post-image processing. Can you describe for me, being non-astronomically inclined, the difference between a refracting and reflecting telescope, and is there one over another that's better for, you know, if you're going to make a, an introductory purchase of a telescope? Yeah, for sure. So refracting telescopes are called refractors because they use the property of glass um, or really any, uh, any, any transparent media called refraction to focus light. So basically a telescope's sole purpose is to take light and to focus it into, uh, into an area. And you can do that using a couple methods um, and refraction is one. So um, refraction, I think most people are familiar with like how magnifying glasses work. Like you have some curved glass and um, the light rays go in and then the glass curves those light rays into a focal point. And that's pretty much what a refracting telescope is doing. A lot of refracting telescopes, if not um, virtually all refracting telescopes, have actually multiple lenses, just because whenever you're refracting uh, light, because glass has a property called dispersion, it does not um, bend all colors of light equally. And so if you were to use just a single lens, you would focus all your colors of light to slightly different areas. And what that causes is if you're looking at, um, for example, a bright object like Jupiter or the moon, if you're focused for one color, um, the other colors would be out of focus if you're using just a single lens. And so you'd see the object, but then you'd see fringes of color, um, usually like purple and, uh, and green and red around that object. It's okay for visual use, but it's really not that good to look at. It's not aesthetically pleasing. And so uh, most refractors these days have at least two lenses back to back. And what those lenses do is they'll partially account for that um, and they'll, they'll correct for it just by their optical design. Um, and you can get pretty crazy with refractors. Like you can get the really high end refractors that have up to five and six lenses in, in series to try and correct every last bit of that's called chromatic aberration, where the colors are, are not focused properly. Essentially the same effect as a prism, right? Exactly. It's, it's, it's using the exact same physical property. And so um, what I'm trying to say is because um, refractors usually have multiple lenses, you're going to have, if you have your average refractor, it's two lenses at the front, and then you have whatever eyepiece at the back. So you're talking about four polished surfaces uh, and two pieces of glass. Um, so that's going to be um, usually inherently more expensive than something that's like a reflecting telescope, um, which uses just a single curved surface of glass that's polished to a mirror finish. Um, that mirror is then reflecting the light out, and um, you're, you're using that curved surface to focus the light instead of um, the curved surface passing the light and refracting it, it's reflecting it. Um, but because 
these refractors inherently have more curved surfaces that need polished and more pieces of glass that need ground and cut and all that. Inch for inch of aperture, refractors will be more expensive. And that's why um, generally reflectors will be cheaper um, for the same size of telescope. Uh, and that's also why I think reflectors make great introductory telescopes. So um, if there is somebody that you know either has gotten a good pair of binoculars and they decide they want to invest in uh, some more money into this uh, this amateur astronomy thing, um, or just somebody that's coming in and kind of wants to um, get a telescope, um, they they know that they're going to be into it. I would recommend something like a solid six or eight inch reflector, which sounds like a big telescope. Like this is like the diameter of this lens or this this uh, mirror is going to be almost like the size of a of a dinner plate. But like I said, the uh, the way that they make these telescopes with mass production and um, economies of scale, you can get like really good six to eight inch reflecting telescopes for only like a couple hundred dollars, like two or three hundred dollars. Um, and that's just insane that you can get something that big for so little these days. And they get they come usually on these really cool mounts called Dobsonian mounts, where it's basically a a box that the telescope sits on and the box rotates around um, the surface that you put put it on. And then it also, the telescope itself, it just moves up and down. So it's pretty simple, fully manual. You just move it with your hands. You, you turn it in the, uh, in the horizontal axis and then it tips up and down in the vertical axis. And those telescopes, yeah, very cost effective for the size that they are. Very little maintenance. Um, they occasionally require some uh, alignment of the optics, but it's it's pretty straightforward. And they usually come with like an eyepiece or two or something like that. Yeah, that's that's what I would recommend uh, as far as like a new telescope is a reflecting telescope um, of that Dobsonian configuration. Now, if you want to get into some other stuff and specialize, you can get specialty instruments. So if you want to, if you know, like, I really want to see planets, like I want to make planets my thing, then you're going to want to get a telescope that has a very long focal length because focal length is magnification. What you would want in that case is something like a Schmidt-Cassegrain telescope, which is a shorter tube. A lot of times you'll see them um, almost look like really short and stubby telescopes. They almost don't look like telescopes just because they're, they're so fat with respect to their length. The really cool thing about those kinds of telescopes is while they are a bit more expensive than just the straight up um, single mirror reflecting telescope, they'll have a ton of magnification crammed into a, a very small space. Um, so those are great for high focal length magnification um, applications. So like planets, high resolution planets, high resolution lunar um, viewing and imaging. On the other side, if you want something um, to do um, like very wide field viewing with, um, you can get just like a really small refracting telescope. Like one of the telescopes I have, it's a 102 millimeter diameter. It's about a four inch diameter refracting telescope. And that telescope is great because you can take it out and you put that thing on the Orion Nebula and it has like a solid two degree field of view, which is pretty wide. Um, and you get a lot of context for that. It makes for really nice pictures because believe it or not, a lot of the best objects in the night sky to see and take pictures of are really big. Like the Andromeda galaxy, you think, oh, it's a galaxy. It's it's billion, it's hundreds of millions of, of light years away or whatever. It can't be that big, but the Andromeda galaxy is actually several diameters of the moon across in the night sky. It's huge. Huh. Um, yeah, and similar like the Orion Nebula is huge. 
a lot of these really pretty nebulas um, and, and things to see in the sky are actually really big. And so you don't need a high power instrument to be able to see them. Hmm. Just a dark sky. Just a dark sky. Yep. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, I know, and I remember seeing this like at the star party and it was pretty cool, like these computer integrated telescopes where I guess you can just program in the coordinates, you know, for an object. And then it just kind of, it'll, it'll move to like that part of the sky. That just, I don't know if that is a good thing or, you know, is there anything in the astronomy community? Like, no, you know, I have to, I have to manually dial it in and find it myself. Are there two schools of thought with that? There definitely are two schools of thought. Um, generally, people in the past, like, it has been mostly um, a manual um, experience for basically the, the entire history of the human race, um, right? You, you point your telescope to where you want it to go based off of paper star charts and things like that. Um, but, but computers have really opened up the night sky to a lot of um, people that might otherwise not have been able to do that. So I definitely um, appreciate, uh, on one hand, you have the people that are purists and they're like, oh, I really want to be able to find the object. And it's, it's definitely like a personal preference thing. Don't get me wrong. There is um, appreciation by physically finding the object yourself using star charts. And um, then you put it in your telescope and you find it and you, you start hopping um, to get there. And like, oh, I found this object all by myself, which can be definitely satisfying for, for some people. Um, so that's a personal preference thing. On the other hand, um, people that are just getting into it, I, I do think that a, uh, like a basic and fundamental understanding of how the night sky is laid out is, is important because while the telescope does everything automatically, you, you just have to know how things are laid out and how, um, how the coordinate systems work to like plan your observing or, or do stuff like that. What basically these telescopes do is you, you point them to a couple known objects. So like you, you set the telescope up on your sidewalk. You tell your telescope, I'm at this latitude and longitude on the planet. It is this time. You're, uh, and that basically tells the telescope, ideally, theoretically, this is the sky um, that should be visible. And assuming like I'm leveled correctly and I'm pointed where I think I'm pointed, this is what the night sky should look like. And then you have to tell the telescope that it is not a perfect universe and it's not leveled correctly and it's not pointed quite due north. And so when you do that, you basically you tell the telescope um, you have to align it to certain points in the sky that it already knows the location of. So like you'll you'll point it to Sirius um, and it knows, all right, I am, I think I am here, but you're telling me to go um, a couple of degrees to the north and a couple of degrees to the west of where I think Sirius is. Therefore, my map needs to be rotated and tilted by this amount. And you're basically programming in an adjustment for how the mount um, and how the telescope is positioned so that it knows how to, how to translate the map of the sky it has in its database to the way it's actually positioned. And so in that case, once you get that alignment routine done, yeah, it's great. You just punch in whatever you want and a telescope goes to that object. And especially for some fainter objects, like galaxies or nebulas or even like Uranus and Neptune that are really hard to um, see by eye, it's really convenient. Um, and I noticed this like when I was in Pennsylvania before I moved out here, I like to do, um, like I said, galaxies and nebulas and things like that 
and you just can't see those objects by eye. So you don't know that you're actually on them until you take the picture. So it really helps to know that the telescope is pointed there before you like start taking your exposures or else you're just like wasting your time. And it's, so it's nice in that regard. So there's also these really cool telescopes. I think I want to say Orion, um, Orion telescopes. Uh, it's, it's a company that makes telescopes. They kind of pioneered this technology um, and it kind of like hybrids these two. It's not quite a go-to telescope with the motors. It's also not quite um, completely manual. So it has encoders and stuff. It's a manual push to telescope. Turn the telescope, you push it to where you want to go. But it actually has encoders in the axes that will, and a little computer in there that will tell you where the object is. So you'll you'll move the telescope, and then the, the hand display will say, "Oh, move, like push it a couple degrees in this direction, or uh, tilt it a couple degrees in this direction," until it finally says you're on that object. And so that I think is really great, especially for new people, because it gives them like a good idea for the layout of the night sky without like pretty much um, taking all of that knowledge away from them by, by doing the, the motors and, and the go-to routine. All right. I actually also have a question about astrophotography. When you want to take an image, um, is there any special sort of setup with, with a camera or a special type of camera? And then, you know, I've seen pictures that people will quote unquote process and they'll describe like the processing procedure that they've done for a particular image. I've seen that with some astrophotographers online and just wanted to understand a little bit about that, you know, sort of the imaging, the nuts and bolts of the imaging. Is it hooking up the eyepiece to the camera lens or is there something more to that? And then it sounds like a lot a lot of elements of that is just the post image processing is is really where it's at. Oh yeah, for sure. You're, you're right. So like when I first started doing astrophotography, it was literally just as simple as like taking my mom's point and shoot camera. Like, you know, the one that has the, um, the lens that like folds up and it has the like, telephotos out, like that, that kind of camera. Um, I built like a cool mount for it and whatnot, but it, it was just literally like, yeah, hooking that up to the eyepiece and, and taking pictures. That's called a focal photography because you are putting the, the camera lens, not at the focal point of the eyepiece. And that's great. It's not super good for image quality. So you'll find that if you see people that are more into, into the hobby, what they'll end up doing is just like taking the eyepiece out of the equation and hooking the, uh, the, the, the camera directly up to the telescope. And when I mean hooking, when I say hooking the camera up to the telescope, I mean like taking any, all the lenses out of the picture. So the light like goes through your telescope and it impacts directly on the silicon of the image sensor. Uh, like the, the telescope becomes your camera lens is essentially what's going on. With that kind of photography, um, that's kind of like the most robust because you, you can get pretty much any camera, any astronomy camera that you want online, it's not gonna come with a lens, which kind of, it's kind of weird because like, oh, I'm buying a camera, but it doesn't have a lens to it. But that's just because the telescope becomes your lens. And so when you buy these cameras, they just come with, with a little nose piece on the front of the camera um, on the front of the, like the image sensor, I, I guess I should say. And that nose piece is sized the same diameter as an eyepiece. So the camera just literally goes into where the eyepiece would normally go, but there's no eyepiece in there anymore. Uh, and so once you um, do the, um, once you do that and you start taking your pictures and, and you can definitely put like filters in front of your camera, like people will have filter wheels to, to bring out different colors and different um, like gases that are emitting light. 
You can put different lenses between the camera and the telescope if you want to magnify the image a bit. And you can do all that stuff. Um, but once you start taking your pictures and you, you get your data, it, the data processing and the image processing really is like where most of the stuff happens. Um, and so to do that, most, if not all people, do what's called stacking. Yeah, tell me what that is. I see that a lot. Yeah, so stacking is, is really great. Think of stacking as averaging, but for a picture. So if you think about it, uh, any image sensor is really just a bunch of photosites, a bunch of pixels, all in a giant grid. And each pixel is really small. Like these, the picture sensors on um, cameras these days are usually, each pixel is about four to five microns in size. So these are really small. And what happens is light comes in, photons strike the silicon that's on that, um, that pixel and they generate electric charge. That charge is then processed. That charge is converted into a value, and that value is then converted into the brightness level for what that pixel measured. And every step along the way, receiving the photon onto the detector, recording the charge, um, amplifying that charge, processing it, that all introduces noise. Noise is essentially unwanted signal. So if you have like 50,000 photons that come in and hit your pixel, um, you're not going to record all 50,000 of those. You might record like 30,000 of those. And so each pick, each photon is going to get converted into an electron. But each electron is going to have to get processed. And in the in the process of, of measuring all those electrons, you're actually like adding more electrons in. So if you get 30,000 electrons from your photons that are coming in on your pixel, um, you're processing, you might get like hundreds of electrons added in, and, but it's random, right? So as the image sensor um, gets warmed up, um, like you're getting down to almost like quant quantum noise level thing. Like, like they th these things are just inherently stochastic and random. And so the long story short of this is each picture you get is going to have noise. And you can think of noise as, you know, when you have a picture and you take it and it's really grainy, that's noise. It's grainy because there's a large difference between pixels that are um, bright and dark. And that noise is just due to, like I said, the inherent stochastic nature of the processing of the picture. And what happens is that the, the good thing about that noise is that it is random. And so because it's random, if you take a bunch of pictures um, and you, you say, all right, for this pixel, you're going to get a bunch of different brightness levels for this one pixel in this image. If you take 100 images and look at the same pixel on those images and you average them together, you're going to get pretty close to the true value, which is, of course, smooth because the night sky doesn't look like noisy. So that's kind of the purpose of stacking. Stacking is taking many pictures and combining them in a way that smooths out the, the noise. Um, and that makes her a much higher quality picture. I'll be honest. I'm a complete novice when it comes to um, astronomy. I'm sitting here listening to this and um, <laughs> I'm learning a lot because honestly, I did not. I, I'm not an astronomy expert by any stretch. Have there been any times where maybe you've used, you know, space information from, you know, maybe like a, a you know, a probe or a spacecraft, you know, to sort of augment that you've studied in astronomy? Is, has there been any time you've done that? Um, and 
can you maybe elaborate a, a little bit on, you know, that being done? So like personally, myself, I've not used used like NASA data or anything like that. Now, I know people that have used, what they'll do is they'll take like the raw pictures that Hubble downlinks to Earth and they'll like process them as if they were their own pictures that they were taking with their telescope. Um, and they'll, sometimes they'll post them online and say, I, I processed this picture and neg neglect to say, oh, by the way, it was taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah, so wow. people, people will do that. Um, it's cool. Like you're, you're taking the highest quality images that like are possible to, to have in processing them yourself. Um, sometimes what I've done is um, I want to take like a picture of the space station. And so like everybody knows that like you can go to NASA's website and they can tell you like when the space station is going to fly overhead. And that's just based off like the orbital elements of the, the space station. Um, to know when that thing's gonna occur, you can like you can go to websites that will tell you, oh, the, the space station is actually gonna fly between the sun and you, or between the moon and you at this specific time, and that's when you can get some really cool pictures of the ISS and all the solar panels and the modules silhouetted against uh, either the sun or the moon. Um, those are really cool pictures. Um, it definitely require like those kind of precise calculations that that NASA has from from the orbital elements because these 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 things are only half a second long like the time it takes for the space station to to pass from one side of the moon to the other from our point of view is like a half second and you have to be like within a, a couple hundred feet of the right place um, to get those kind of pictures and so that that's that's one aspect where um, it's helpful to have uh, third party sources. We hope you enjoyed our two episodes on amateur astronomy. We certainly learned a lot. Join us next time for a chat with our own co-moderator, Emily Carney, who will regale us with tales of physicist and space futurist, the one and only GKO, Gerard K. O'Neill. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.